If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 5, if you're new with us this morning. Uh, first of all, welcome. Glad you're here. You should know that we are in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Luke. Here at Free Money Free, we like to take books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. And right now we're going through a series on the Gospel of Luke. And this morning that means we've landed in Luke 5, 27 to 39. Let me pray, then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we want to pause here before we turn our attention to your word and just ask for your help. We know that on a week-to-week basis, on a day-to-day basis, on an hour-to-hour basis, There are always a million things going on around us, and it's easy for our hearts to be distracted. It's easy for us to lose focus on what matters. It's easy for us to lose sight of our priorities. But God, we pray this morning that as we turn our attention to your word, that your spirit would allow us to be focused on what your word is teaching so that we might regain a proper sense of what matters most. God, we're asking that you would help us this morning. We acknowledge that we are weak. We acknowledge that we are prone to wander. We acknowledge that we are sinners. And so we're just praying that you would help us this morning in our weakness, that we being weak jars of clay, that you would still mold us and shape us into vessels that would be used for your glory. So God, we're just praying that you would speak to us through your word. We're praying that you would minister to us through our passage today in Luke chapter 5. God, be gracious to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, self-described as the world's only private ski, golf, and adventure community, The Yellowstone Club is a club that's designed for those who love luxury and outdoors. Located west of Big Sky in the Rocky Mountains of Montana, the Yellowstone Club is an exclusive community in which members have private access to over 2,900 acres of world-class ski trails. Dubbed as private powder, the ski trails on the club's private mountain are undoubtedly the greatest perk of the Yellowstone Club. But the private ski trails are certainly not the only perk. Along with downhill skiing, members can also snowshoe, cross-country ski, or ice skate in the winter. In the summer, members are able to fly fish, mountain bike, and horseback ride on the club's property. Members also have access to a pristine 18-hole golf course designed by world-renowned course architect Tom Weiskopf. In addition, there are over 30 miles of single-track hiking trails, 16 different restaurants on site, and a camp house, pool, and fitness center. And if you're worried about safety or security, the club's 13,600 acres are protected by security force that is staffed by former Secret Service agents. Needless to say, if you're a fan of the outdoors and adventure, the Yellowstone Club has everything you could possibly want. And given its location and its amenities, it's no wonder then that the Yellowstone Club has attracted members from all over the United States and all over the world. But here's the thing, if you're wanting to become a member of the Yellowstone Club, it's not the easiest thing to do. First of all, you must own a home in the area to be eligible for membership. And given that the typical house price in this area ranges between two and $25 million, that's a pretty steep price tag. On top of the price of home ownership, though, there's also an initial $400,000 sign-up fee and an annual membership fee of $41,500. And if that's not enough in terms of exclusivity, there are only 864 members allowed at any one time. So even if you have several million dollars to buy a house, another half a million dollars for the sign-up fee and $41,000 each year for the membership fee, there's no guarantee that you can be a part of the club given the limited amount of memberships. And so in light of all those factors, this should probably come as no surprise then that the membership list for the Yellowstone Club includes some of the world's wealthiest and highest profile individuals. To get into the Yellowstone Club, you have to have some serious money and most likely some serious connections too. This is not the type of club that you just walk into the clubhouse and join. It's the type of club that you have to be someone or know someone or most likely be someone and know someone to be a part of. But while the Yellowstone Club may be extraordinarily exclusive, it's not alone in its exclusive mentality. The Yellowstone Club may be somewhat unique 
and it has its own private ski mountain, but there are plenty of clubs around the world that are just like the Yellowstone Club in terms of mentality. Whether it be city clubs or artistic clubs or golf clubs, there are plenty of clubs around the world that are highly exclusive in their membership. To be a member of these types of clubs, you have to possess certain attributes. Namely, you need to have lots of money or incredible talent or have amazing connections. You have to be someone or know someone. But exclusive club discussion aside, it's kind of the way our world works, isn't it? If you want to be influential, if you want to do something important, you need to be the right type of person who possesses the right type of connections. And the fact that our world works in this way is part of what makes the message of Christianity so strange and so countercultural. To be a Christian, you don't have to be rich or famous or connected or highly successful. Actually, you just have to know that you're messed up and that you need a savior. Or as one author I read this week put it, the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. To be a Christian, you don't have to have it all together. In fact, on the contrary, to be a Christian, you just have to recognize you don't have it all together and you need help. Or to say it more simply, you just need to recognize your need. Christianity then is indeed completely countercultural. Being a Christian is not about who you are or your earthly connections that you possess. It's about recognizing your unworthiness and then turning to a Savior who is completely sufficient. And this is a reality that we're reminded of in our passage today. In Luke chapter 5, we find the story of an unlikely disciple. And in the story of that unlikely disciple, we're reminded of the types of people that Jesus loves to rescue. And as we see the people that he loves to rescue, we're reminded that Christianity is indeed countercultural. Christianity is not the Yellowstone Club. Instead, it's a fellowship of those who know they need help. That said, let's stand then and turn our attention to Luke chapter 5. Standing is just a simple way to remind ourselves that we're reading the Word of God here. So the words will be on the screen here shortly, or you can just follow along as I read, or you can read along in your own Bibles. But Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39 says this, beginning in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, The old is good. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So our passage today begins with Jesus calling Levi to follow him. And understand the significance of this passage. You need to understand how unexpected it is that Jesus would call someone like Levi to be his disciple. Now for the record, we should say this. Levi is also called Matthew at other points in the gospel. Luke and in other gospels. Like many other disciples, then it would appear that Levi had more than one name. Most likely one of the names was Hebrew or Aramaic, the other was Greek. Nevertheless, the point is Levi and Matthew are the same person. Matthew is just another name for Levi. But since he's referred to as Levi in this passage, for our purposes this morning, we're just going to refer to him as Levi, but no, we're talking about Matthew also. 
Nevertheless, name aside, perhaps the most important detail we learn about Levi in verse 27 is that he was a tax collector. And therein lies the unexpected nature of this passage. In ancient Palestine, tax collectors were a, day, were, excuse me, a despised class of people. For the Jewish people in particular, tax collectors were seen to be traitors and that they were collaborating with the Roman government. Furthermore, tax collectors were known for their dishonesty and extortionist tendencies. In fact, they were so well known for their cheating ways that generally speaking, the testimony of tax collectors was not allowed in the court system because everyone just assumed if you are a tax collector, you are a liar. So if you were living in the first century and you were trying to come up with a list of potential candidates for discipleship with Jesus, it's pretty unlikely, in fact, it's unfathomable that Levi would have been on your list. Levi's resume does not exactly scream candidate to follow the Savior. Instead, for the first century Jewish person, Levi's resume screamed traitor, liar, scum of the universe. Jesus calling Levi to be a disciple would kind of be like the equivalent of us, free money free, calling a mafia boss or a strip club owner or a loan shark to be a pastoral intern. It's not exactly the pool of resumes that you would expect to be looking in. So to say the least then, Jesus calling Levi is unexpected. He's an unlikely candidate for discipleship. But as unexpected as this story might be, I think Levi's story is a really important one because it communicates something to us about the nature of Christianity. More specifically, I think the story of Levi calling Levi, or excuse me, of Jesus calling Levi communicates two crucial truths to us as it relates to the nature of the gospel message and the call to follow Jesus. And it's those two crucial truths that I want us to think about this morning. Crucial truth number one, Jesus came to rescue the weak and the lowly, those who are sick in need of a doctor. Look again at verses 27 and 28. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now note that when Jesus calls Levi, Levi is sitting at the tax booth. It's not as if he's in the synagogue then contemplating the direction of his life. Should I be a tax collector anymore? Maybe I should follow Jesus. That's not the picture that we're given here. Instead, the picture we're given is that Levi is in the midst of his tax collecting when Jesus calls him. And in that, it's clear that Jesus has a heart for sinners and those who are lost. And that same heart for sinners and those who are lost is evidenced in the next part of the story, verses 29 and 30. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there's a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So after deciding to follow Jesus, Levi throws a huge feast for his friends. And it's clear from the description of the friends in verse 29 that most of his friends would have been considered immoral and unclean by the religious leaders and the Pharisees. Like Levi, in other words, they would have been classified as sinners. This perception of the Pharisees is confirmed by their grumbling in verse 30 as they ask the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus' response to that question gets at the heart of the passage and the heart of why Jesus would go to dinner with Levi or why he would call Levi in the first place. Look at verses 31 and 32. Verse 31, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost. Like a doctor, he came to bring healing to those who are hurting. He came to call sinners to repentance. And in all of this, it's abundantly clear. Jesus came to rescue the weak and the lowly, the sick and the hurting. He came to rescue those who are in need. 
Or maybe to say it more simply, Jesus came to rescue sinners. Without question, that is good news for every last person in this room. Listen, I know that some of you are here this morning, you just deal with serious shame and guilt. Perhaps there's some sexual sin, sexual sin that haunts you. Or maybe you said something to someone in the past that you can never take back. Or maybe you had an abortion at one point. Or, or maybe someone did something to you at one point that just made you feel dirty and unwanted. Or maybe it's something else, something so dark and ugly that if anyone else in this room knew, you would be absolutely mortified. But if that's you, know this. You are never too far gone for the grace of God. Jesus came to rescue lost sinners. When he picked the disciples, he didn't pick the most polished. He didn't pick the most educated. He didn't pick the most well-spoken. He didn't pick those who had the best resume. He didn't pick those who had a spotless reputation. He chose men who knew that they were sinners and knew they needed rescued. He chose men like Levi. Levi's inclusion in the story of Jesus, and for that matter, the subsequent dinner that then takes place at Levi's house, both of those things are a reminder to us that Jesus came to rescue the weak and the lowly, those who are sick and in need of a doctor. So if you're here today and you know that you're messed up, you know that you're a broken person in need of help, I would say you're actually in a good spot because Jesus came to rescue those who know that they need help. And that's the first crucial truth that we learn in this story this morning, that Jesus came to rescue the weak and the lowly, those who are sick and in need of a doctor. Crucial truth number two. The call to follow Jesus is a call to repent and leave everything. Now here's the challenge we face with the passages like this one. In our culture today, we tend to think that when it comes to dealing with sin and dealing with sinners, we face an either-or proposition. Either we love sinners and we associate with them, or we condemn sinners and we call them to repentance. The idea that we could do both at the same time is completely contrary to the way our culture thinks. In the world's eyes, if you're going to love a lost person, you need to affirm them in their sin. If you call them to repentance, it means that you actually hate them. But as commentator Daryl Bach points out in reference to this passage, for Jesus, it was not an either-or proposition. Jesus associated with and loved sinners, and at the same time, he condemned their sin and called them to repentance. So when we talk about Jesus loving lost people, we're not at all suggesting that Jesus affirmed them in their sin or turned a blind eye to their rebellion. Now, without question, and we do need to say this clearly, he loves sinners, but he called them to repentance. Look again at the way the passage ends in verse 32. This is Jesus talking. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's been said before that the church should be less like a museum and more like a hospital. And I think that's a helpful way of thinking. We don't come here on Sunday mornings to be a museum in which we're all beautiful artifacts on display for everyone to see. Look at us, perfect little exhibits of Christianity. Do, 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 do. Right? That's not our story. No, we're a hospital where broken people come to get help. But here's the thing, and this is important. You don't go to a hospital to stay broken and sick. You go to the hospital to get the help you need. I mean, put it this way. Because of my son's and wife's health issues, I've spent a lot of time at hospitals over the last five years. And I can honestly say this. I have never once thought to myself, let's just go to the hospital and hang out for fun. I've never told Tanya, love, it's date night. I know where we can go tonight. There's a place with great ambiance and it's super romantic, the hospital cafeteria. Now, maybe I'm alone in thinking that way. Maybe you and your spouse love to go to the hospital cafeteria on date night. Maybe some of you are high schoolers and you're thinking about where should we go for prom 
uh, for the meal beforehand, and you're thinking probably the hospital cafeteria. And listen, if that's you, more power to you, I'm happy for you. But I'm guessing that's not most of us. Most of us, most of us go to the hospital for one reason, and one reason only, to get better or maybe to visit someone who's trying to get better. So if the church is a hospital, I think it's a helpful analogy in that it reminds us that we're broken. But it's also helpful because it reminds us that you go to the hospital to try and get better. It's okay for us to be broken and sinful people. That's actually why we're here, because we recognize we're messed up. But we don't want to stay in a perpetual state of brokenness and sin. Hear this, Jesus was always willing to associate with sinners. But he also called them to repentance and to a better way of living. And that better way of living is following him and obeying his commands. And actually, we see that modeled in the life of Levi. Levi leaves his former way of living, and he follows Jesus. In other words, what we're saying is this. Levi didn't just intellectually embrace the idea that Jesus loves lost sinners. No, he uproots his life, and he follows Jesus because he understands Jesus' love. Now, it's true that Jesus' love for lost sinners is at the heart of the gospel message. The only qualification for being a Christian is you recognize your sin and your need and you run to Jesus. But it's also true that Jesus doesn't leave us in our sin and in our need. He calls us to repent. He calls us to leave everything and follow him. And I think we need to see both of those truths in this passage. That Jesus came to rescue the weak and the lowly, those who are sick in need of a doctor. But also, the call to follow Jesus is a call to repent and leave everything. It's vital we see both of those truths in this passage because both communicate something important about who Jesus is. I think it's also vital that we respond to both of those truths because as we said before, and no doubt we'll say again, the word of God is not just meant to be admired or observed, it's meant to be applied. And so in the rest of our time together this morning, I just want to challenge you to do two things in light of the crucial truths that we learn in this story about Jesus calling Levi. In other words, I want to encourage you to take two action steps this morning. Action step number one, be on guard against the danger of self-righteousness. Be on guard against the danger of self-righteousness. As we've already talked about at length, one of the crucial truths of this passage is that Jesus came to rescue the weak and the lowly, those who are sick and need of a doctor. But one of the implied realities of that statement is that in order to get better, you have to realize that you are sick so that you actually go to the doctor. Or to say it another way, those who, don't, those who don't think they're sick won't go to the doctor, and because they don't go to the doctor, they won't get better. I think this is actually implied in what Jesus says in verses 31 and 32. Look again, verses 31 and 32. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When Jesus talks about those who are well having no need of a physician, when he talks about those about how he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I don't think he's suggesting that there actually is a group of people who are healthy and righteous to the point that they don't need to be rescued by him. As the rest of the Bible makes clear, there is no one who's righteous, not one. So when Jesus talks about not calling the righteous, I think he's actually calling out the Pharisees. He's accusing them of being self-righteous and thinking that they don't need a doctor. And without question, the Pharisees are self-righteous throughout the Gospels, and they are certainly self-righteous in this passage. Look again at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now the Pharisees, as you may already know, were a group of people that were highly religious and highly committed to following rules. 
In their mind, they saw their actions and their rules as a means by which God would approve of them. This is why they looked down on the tax collectors and sinners. The tax collectors and the sinners broke the rules, and thus, in their mind, the Pharisees' mind, they could not be right with God. And so when Jesus eats with these tax collectors and sinners, in the Pharisees' mind, he's only defiling himself. What the Pharisees don't understand, though, is that they too are sinners in need of rescue. And what they also don't understand is that Jesus is not defiled by eating with sinners. As we saw last week in the story of Jesus cleansing the leper, Jesus doesn't become unclean when he's around sinners. Instead, Jesus cleanses the mess. But the Pharisees don't see that because they're too busy being arrogant about their own righteousness. And the arrogance of the Pharisees regarding their own sin, uh, regarding their own sin and their ignorance regarding who Jesus is are evident in the next section of the passage too. Look at verse 33. And they, that being the Pharisees, said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Again, the Pharisees and the scribes here are self-righteously throwing shade at Jesus. In verse 33, they're asking the question, John's disciples fast? Our disciples, the Pharisees, fast? Why is it that your disciples, Jesus, why is it that they're eating and drinking with lost sinners? In other words, why aren't they fasting? Why aren't they following the rules? And Jesus' response to their question, I think, is twofold. That one, they don't understand the purpose of fasting, and two, they don't understand who he is. We see the first of those answers in verses 34 and 35. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus' first response to this self-righteous questioning of the Pharisees is to point out that the scribes and Pharisees don't seem to really understand the purpose of fasting. As a whole, the Pharisees were a group that was highly committed to fasting. In fact, on both Mondays and Thursdays of every week, the Pharisees would fast. And they would fast as a means of mourning over their sin and aching for things to be fixed. But what Jesus is hinting at in verses 34 and 35 is that he came to fix those things. In other words, there's no longer a need to mourn because the fixer is here. Or to use the analogy that Jesus uses in verses 34 and 35, the bridegroom is here, so why would his disciples need to fast now? Shouldn't they instead enjoy the wedding banquet? And I have to say, this analogy makes perfect sense if you've ever been to a true wedding celebration. When Tony and I lived in New York, we got, invi- we got invited one time to a really fancy wedding. The first part of the reception was in this huge room where there were food stations everywhere. Super fancy appetizers, amazing finger food. I think there was even a burrito station. But then after about an hour of this huge feast, they opened up a curtain to reveal there's an even bigger room off to the side with a gigantic dining room that was attached to this first room. And from that point, they then proceeded to have a super fancy four-course dinner. It was incredible. I don't know if I've ever experienced a wedding feast quite like that. And in retrospect, I would have to say this. For me to fast on a day like that would have been crazy. We were celebrating our friends getting married, and it was the party of all parties. This was not a day to be somber. This was a day to celebrate and feast. This is what Jesus is getting at with his analogy in verses 34 and 35. He's saying if the bridegroom is present, that's him in this analogy, there is no need to fast. Instead, there should be celebration. The point of all religious activity, including fasting, is to draw near to God. But if Jesus is God and he's present, just draw near to him. 
The Pharisees then were misunderstanding the point of religious activity and fasting. The point of religious activity and specifically fasting is to draw near to God. So if Jesus is present, this is what he's getting at, then they should just draw near to him. Now, as Jesus alludes to in verse 35, when the bridegroom is taken, that's a hint that he's going to die on the cross, there will be time for fasting again. But while he's present, his disciples need to be with him. So one reason why the Pharisees were getting everything wrong is because they didn't understand the purpose of fasting. The purpose of fasting, like the purpose of all religious activity, is to draw near to God, not just to fast for the sake of fasting or to be religious for the sake of being religious. But there's another problem with the Pharisees' point of view. They didn't understand who Jesus was, and they didn't understand how his coming changed everything. And that's the point that Jesus makes using two kind of strange analogies in verses 36 to 38. Verse 36. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Excuse me, that's verse 35, but that's fine. I'll give his context. Verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So Jesus gives us these two kind of strange analogies in verses 36 to 38. And I think they're both making the same point. The point is you can't combine the new with the old. In the same way you wouldn't take a new garment, think of a new shirt here, and tear a piece off that new shirt and put it on an old shirt because that would ruin the new shirt and also not match the old shirt. Or in the same way that you wouldn't pour new wine into old wineskins because the old wineskins had lost their elasticity and thus could easily burst. And thus, in the process, ruin both the new wine and the old, skin, or old wine skins. In other words, in the same way that you can't take old things and combine them with new, what he's saying is you can't keep the Pharisees' way of thinking when Jesus is on the scene. What he's saying is when I arrived, a new era dawned. Again, we draw near to God now through the work of Jesus Christ, not by keeping rules and regulations. The Pharisees loved rules and regulations, but Jesus is saying it's not rules and regulations, it's me. You draw near to God through me. Now, as Jesus points out in verse 39, the Pharisees liked their old way of thinking. They liked to think the old is good. But what Jesus is saying is the old is gone and the new has come. He has arrived. And thus, the point that Jesus is making is that the self-righteous rule-keeping of the Pharisees is wrong on multiple levels. It's wrong because they're putting too much emphasis on their own actions. It's wrong because they don't see their own sin. It's wrong because they're missing out on the joy of being with Jesus. And it's wrong because they don't understand that the way forward is the way of grace through the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, I think both sections, verses 27 to 32 and verses 33 to 39, are implicitly and explicitly warning against the dangers of a Pharisee-like mentality. Or to say it more simply, they're warning against the danger of self-righteousness. This idea that we can somehow earn favor by our own actions. And in that, I think there's certainly a word for us. Here's the thing. It's easy for us to critique the Pharisees this morning. How could they criticize Jesus? How could they be so self-righteous? I think if we're honest, all of us have Pharisee-like tendencies. Rather than recognizing our sin and owning it, we tend to justify ourselves. We tend to think, well, we're not as bad as the next guy. Or everybody else sins too. Nobody's perfect. But here's the danger in operating with that type of mentality. Christianity is not for people who think they are righteous. 
Rather, it's for those who know they need a doctor. Or C.S. Lewis once said it, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It has nothing to say to people who do not know that they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel they need any forgiveness. Here's the deal. If you feel like your sin is not that bad, if you feel like eternal punishment is unfair because we haven't done that much, if you feel like you have the high moral ground over others, that is a dangerous place to be. In fact, maybe even a deadly place. Whether we know it or not, all of us need to get to the hospital. We are bleeding out because of our sin. Now, some of us are gushing that sin out. Others, it's a slow trickle, but nevertheless, all of us are bleeding out. And half the battle is recognizing that we are bleeding and we need to get help. Beware the danger of self-righteousness. Christianity is not for the strong and self-assured. Christianity is for those who know they are weak and they need a savior. So the first action step in light of our passage today, I think is simply this, be on guard against the dangers of self-righteousness. Action step number two, leave everything and follow him. Look again at verses 27 to 29. After this, he went out, that's Jesus, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Now, I love this picture of Levi leaving everything to follow Jesus. As a tax collector, there's no doubt that Levi would have been making some serious money. When Jesus calls him to follow, he leaves everything, and he follows him. And then in verse 29, he throws this huge party so that his friends can meet Jesus too. Now, obviously, there are a lot of details that we don't know about this story. We don't know every last decision that Levi made. We don't know exactly what it looked like for him to leave his job. But from what we do know, we can safely say this. Levi reoriented his entire life and changed his priorities in order to follow Jesus. And if we desire to follow Jesus, the same will be true for us. Now, obviously, I'm not necessarily saying that you need to leave your life as a tax collector. I'm not saying you need to necessarily throw a giant party at your house to introduce your friends to Jesus. Although it's possible following Jesus may make you consider your line of work again or might make you more intentional in trying to reach your friends with Jesus. But the larger point I'm trying to make is simply this. To follow Jesus is to reorient your priorities. It's to repent of your sin and then live for him. And maybe that's something you need to be reminded of this morning. Now maybe for some of you, you have never turned to Christ. You've never made the commitment to follow Jesus. And if that's the case, let me encourage you this morning to follow the example of Levi. Leave everything and follow him, knowing that there's nowhere else you can go to find life. There's nowhere else you can go to find forgiveness of sins. There's nowhere else you can go to get peace with God. But for others of you, maybe there was a time in your life where you decided to follow Christ, but slowly over time, You've forgotten that following Jesus means prioritizing him over everything else. And so over time, you've started to care more about other things. Maybe you're a student and you've started to care more about school or about your friends at school or about sports. Or maybe you're in the adult world and you started to care more about work or making money or keeping up with the Joneses. But again, let Levi's example be an example for you. Levi left money on the table. His priorities changed. And they changed because he met Jesus. So follow Levi's example and reorient your priorities to follow him. And know this, if you make that change, if you prioritize following Jesus, then joy will follow. And that joy will be eternal. And that's the thing about following Jesus. 
to be a part of the church and to follow Jesus, you don't have to be someone or have fancy connections. You just need to know that you're a sinner and turn to Jesus. And once you make that decision to follow him, the perks of following Jesus are far greater than the perks of any other club. Being a part of the Yellowstone Club, for example, may mean that you get private skiing and horseback rides and fly fishing. But knowing and following Jesus means that you have peace with God, eternal life, and everlasting joy. So church, my encouragement to you this morning is pretty simple. Follow the example of Levi. Recognize your need, leave everything, and follow Jesus. Let's pray. God, we confess that we are sinners. We confess that there's a lot more in us that's like Levi than we want to admit. Although Levi may have lived a life that was outwardly rebellious and outwardly ugly, we know that the truth of our inward hearts apart from Jesus is the same. We're thankful, though, that Jesus did come. He came to rescue people like Levi. He came to rescue people like us. And so, Lord, if there's anyone who's here this morning who doesn't know you, maybe the shame and guilt of sin is just wearing them down. They feel on their shoulders even in this very moment. I pray that they would see the, vault, the example of Levi and they would take the same path. They would repent and trust Jesus and follow him. For those of us who at one point or another in life have, have made this decision to follow you, I pray that we would see Levi's example today and we would be reminded that to follow you is to reorient our priorities. I pray that you would help us to prioritize the things that we ought to prioritize, to prioritize following you. I pray that you would also keep us from self-righteousness, from this idea that somehow we can earn favor based upon our own merit. God, I pray that we would recognize that, yes, we are great sinners, but you are a great Savior, and we would rest in that reality. Please, Lord, help us to rest in the grace that's found in Jesus and help us to follow him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.